Chapter 6 The Master She went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. John eleven twenty eight. I suppose by Martha's whispering the word the teacher or the master in Mary's ear that it was the common name by which the sisters spoke of our Lord to one another when he was not there. Maybe it was his usual name among all the disciples, for Jesus said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. John thirteen thirteen. It often happens that for people whom we love we have some special title by which we speak of them familiarly, when we are in the circle of those who join in our esteem of them. Instead of always using their official titles or their actual names, there is a name that we have attached to them that is associated with happy occasions, or reminds us of their endearing character traits, and therefore it is very sweet to us. I suppose that most of the disciples called Jesus the Master, many of them adding with it the word Lord. Mary, I suppose, was especially apt to use that term, for it was her name for the Lord. I imagine that she called him my Master. Of course, Martha could not say to Mary, Your Master is come, for that would have been to cast suspicion on her own loyalty to Jesus. Maybe she was not in a frame of mind to say, Our Master remembering that he was master of so many other people too, and half hoping that he might be master over death itself. She therefore said, The Master. It was an emphatic title, The Master is here. It's very remarkable that minds of a kindred spirit to Mary have always loved this title of The Master. That wondrous, sweet, mystic poet and dear lover of his Lord, George Herbert, whenever he heard the name of Jesus mentioned, would always say, My Master. He has given us that pleasing poem, The Odor, which begins, How sweetly doth my master sound! My Master! There must be something exceedingly precious about the title for a Mary and a Herbert to love that name above all other names. Jesus has many names, all full of music. This must be special indeed to be chosen above them all as the title that his most beloved followers prefer to give to him. There are many among us who are ourselves accustomed to speak of the Lord as the Master, and although there are many other titles, such as the Well-Beloved, the Good Shepherd, the Friend, the Bridegroom, the Redeemer, and the Saviour, yet we still cherish a very special affection for this one name that gives forth to us an oriental fragrancy, with which all day we do perfume our mind. The word could just as well be translated the teacher, the authoritative teacher, for that is the gist of its meaning. I am glad to use the term the master, because usage and sweet association have made the word sacred to me and also because we have still among us the custom of calling the head teacher in a school or college the master. However, if the phrase is translated as the teacher is come, it might be closer to the actual meaning. I will say a few words now about the deep appropriateness of this title as applied to our Lord. Jesus is indeed the master, the teacher. What if I put the two together? and say, The Master Teacher. 
He has a special suitableness for this office. To be a master teacher, a person must have a masterly mind. Certainly, all minds are not cast in the same mold and are not possessed with the same strength, depth, force, and quickness of action. Some minds are princely by their very formation. Even though they may belong to common people, the imperial stamp is on them. These minds cannot be smothered by a peasant's garment or kept down by the load of poverty. Master minds are recognized by an inherent superiority, and they force their way to the front. I won't comment on the moral qualities of Napoleon, but a mind as vast as his could not have been hidden away forever among the soldiers in the ranks. He must become a captain and a conqueror. So too a Cromwell or a Washington must rise to be masters among men because the caliber of their minds was masterly. Such people see things quickly, and they hold them with a comprehensive grasp. They have a way of infusing faith into others about things that, before long, pushes them into a master's position with the common consent of everyone around them. You cannot have someone with a little soul for a master teacher. He may try to place himself into the chair of the teacher, but everyone will see that he is out of place, and no one will delight to think of him as his master. There are many painters, but there have been few Raphaels or Michelangelos, few who could start schools to perpetuate their names. There have been many singers, but few have founded schools of tuneful thought in which they have been the beloved choir masters. There have been many philosophers, but a Socrates or an Aristotle will not be found every day, for great teachers must have great minds, and these are rare among men. The teacher of all teachers, the master of all the teachers, needs to be a grand, colossal spirit, head and shoulders above other men. Mary saw such a person in her Lord Jesus Christ, and we see such a one there also. Therefore we use for our Lord the name of the Master. In Christ Jesus we have divinity itself, with its omniscience and infallibility, and at the same time a complete manhood, harmonious in all its qualities, a perfect equilibrium of excellence, in which there is no excess and no deficiency. You find in Him a perfect mind, and that mind is so human as to be intensely manly, yet also sweetly tender. In Jesus there was all the tenderness and sympathy of woman joined with all the strength and courage of man. His love was tender, but not effeminate. His heart was masculine, but not hard and stern. He was the complete man, unfallen manhood in its perfectness. Our Lord was a man who made an impression upon all who came near Him. They either hated Him intensely or loved Him fervently. Wherever He was, He was seen to be a prince among the sons of men. The devil recognized Him and tempted Him beyond all others. Satan saw in Him a foeman worthy of his steel, and took Him into the wilderness to have a duel with Him, hoping to defeat the race by conquering its clear leader. Even scribes and Pharisees, who despised everyone who didn't make the borders of their garments broad, Matthew 23, 5, could not despise this man. They could hate him, 
but their hate was the unconscious reverence that evil is forced to give to superlative goodness and greatness. Jesus could not be ignored and overlooked. He was a force in every place, a power wherever He was. He is a master, yes, the master. There is a magnificence about His whole human nature so that He stands out above all other men, like some mighty alpine peak that stands above the lesser hills and casts its shadow upon the valleys. But to be a master teacher, a person must not only have a master mind, but he must also have a master knowledge of that which he has to teach, and it is best if that knowledge is acquired by experience rather than by instruction. This was the case with our Lord Jesus. He came to teach us the science of life, and in Him was life. He experienced life in all its phases, and He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. The highest were not above Him, and He did not regard the lowest as beneath Him, but He condescended to their infirmities and sorrows. There are no dreary valleys of desolation that His feet have not walked. There are no lofty peaks of joy that He has not scaled. Wondrous was the joy as well as the sorrow of our Lord Jesus Christ. He leads His people through the wilderness, and like Hobab of old, Numbers 10.29-31, He knows where they should encamp in the wilderness, and He understands the way that they must travel to reach the promised land. He was made perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2.10. He doesn't teach any truth as mere theory, but He knows truth as a matter of His actual experience. He has tested the remedy He gives to us. If there is bitterness for us, He has consumed full bowls of it. If there is sweetness in His cup, He gives us of His joy. By personal acquaintance and experience, He understands very well all things that have to do with this life and godliness, and the whole realm of salvation from the gates of hell up to the throne of God. There's not a single chapter of the book of God's revelation or a single page of the book of experience that he does not understand. Therefore, he is fit to teach, having both a master mind and a master knowledge of that which he comes to impart. Moreover, our great master had a masterful way of teaching while he was here below. This is essential, for not everyone with vast knowledge and a great mind can teach others. Ability to teach is required. We know some whose words never seem to be in the language of ordinary people. If they have anything to say, they say it in a language of their own, which they and a few of their disciples probably understand, but it is unintelligible to ordinary people. Blessed is that teacher who teaches what he understands himself in a way that enables others to understand him. I like the style of old William Cobbett when he said, I not only speak so that people can understand me, but so that they cannot misunderstand me. That was the kind of teacher that Christ was to his own disciples. When they sat at his feet, he made truth so clear that the simplest people, even if uneducated, understood his message. By plain parables and phrases that caught the ear and won the heart, he brought down heavenly truths to ordinary minds 
as the Spirit of God cleansed those minds and made them able to receive the truth. Not only did Jesus teach plainly, but He also taught lovingly. So gently did He explain things to His own disciples that it must have been a pleasure to be ignorant in order to require to be taught, and it must have been an even greater pleasure to continue to learn in such a way. The way in which He taught was as sweet as the truth that He taught. All who entered Christ's school felt at home, were pleased with their Master, and were confident that if they could learn anywhere, they would learn at His feet. In connection with His teaching, the Master gave a measure of the Holy Spirit, not the full measure, for that was reserved until He had ascended up on high, and the Spirit would baptize the church, but He gave to each of His people a measure of the Spirit of God by which truths were not taught only to their ears, but also to their hearts. Oh, my brethren, we are not such teachers as Christ, for when we have done our best, we can only reach the ear. We cannot give the Holy Spirit, but He can. When the Spirit comes from Christ and takes of His things and reveals them to us, then we see more of our Lord's masterly methods of teaching. We can learn how much of a master Jesus is. He writes his lessons not on the blackboard, but on tablets of human hearts. 2 Corinthians 3 3. He does not just give us school books, but he is the book. He not only sets lessons before us, but he is the lesson. He demonstrates for us that which he wants us to do, so that when we know him, we know what he has to teach, and when we imitate him, we have followed the instructions that he gives. Our Lord's way of incorporating His instruction in Himself is a truly magnificent way, and none can rival Him in it. Do not children learn infinitely more by example than they ever do by words? This is how our Master teaches us. Scripture Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks, John 7.46, is a great Christian proverb, but it might be surpassed by another one. Never has a man acted the way this man acts, for this man's deeds and words complement each other. The deeds embody and enforce the words, give them life, and help us to understand them. Jesus is a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15, because he is mighty both in word and in deed, Luke 24.19, Acts 7.22. And so he is the master of both prophets and teachers. His is a master mind, a master experience, and a master method of teaching. He is certainly rightly called the master. In addition to these things, dear friends, there was a master influence that Jesus, as a teacher, had over those who came within his range. They didn't merely see, but they felt. They didn't only know, but they loved. They didn't just value the lesson, but they worshipped the teacher. What a master Christ was, whose very self became the power by which sin was restrained and ultimately cast out. It was by Christ Jesus that virtue was implanted and the new life was begun, nourished, and brought to perfection. To have someone teach you who is very dear to you, makes the lessons easy, 
No child learns better than from a mother qualified to teach, who knows how to make her lessons sweet by crystallizing them in the sugar of her own affection. It is then a pleasure as well as a duty to learn. But no mother ever won her child's heart, and there have been tender and affectionate mothers too, as thoroughly as Jesus won the heart of Mary. Or, I may say, as Jesus has won your heart and mine, if your heart feels the same as my heart feels to my Lord. We don't need any reasonings from him to prove what he says, for instead of reason and argument, he is truth himself. His love is the logic that proves everything to us. With him we hold no debate, for what he has done for us has answered every question we could raise. If he tells us what we do not understand, we believe it. We ask if we may understand it, and if he tells us no, we stay where we are and believe the mystery. We love him so much that we are as glad not to know as to know, if that is his will. We believe his silence is as eloquent as his speech, and that which he conceals is as kindly intended as that which he reveals. Because we love him, he exerts such an influence over us that we immediately accept and cherish his teaching. The more we know him, and the more his inexpressibly delightful influence dominates our nature, the more completely we submit our imagination, thought, reason, and everything to him. People might call us fools for it, but we have learned at Jesus' feet that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 1 Corinthians 1.21, and that, except we are converted and become like little children, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18.3, and therefore we are not concerned when the world thinks we are childish and naive. The world is growing more manly and more foolish, and we are growing more childlike and more wise. We believe that to grow downward into our Lord Jesus is the surest and truest kind of growth. It's only when we have grown all the way down to nothing, and even lower than that, until we are less than nothing, that we will be fully grown in the school of Jesus. It is only then that we will have a degree in true learning, knowing the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 3.19 we can very rightly call him master who has a masterly mind, a masterly experience, a masterly way of teaching, and exerts a masterly influence over his students so that they are forever bound, heart and soul, to him, and consider Christ himself to be his own greatest lesson as well as the greatest of all instructors. Having proved that our beloved Lord is well entitled to the name, Let me add that he is by office the one and only master of the church. There is in the Christian church no authority for any doctrine except Christ's word. The inspired book that he has left us, commanding us never to take a letter away from it or add a syllable to it, Revelation 22, 18-19, that book is our life manual, our authorized creed, and our settled standard of belief. I hear much said about various theology books and books of divinity, but my own impression is that there never was but one body of divinity, and there never will be but one, 
and that is Jesus Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2, 9. The true church's body of divinity is Christ. Some churches refer to other standards, but we know no standard of theology but our Master. Jesus said, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John 12:32. We feel no pull toward any other master. He is the standard. To him shall be the obedience of the people. Genesis 49:10. We are not of those people who will go no further than Martin Luther. Thank God for Martin Luther. God forbid that we should say a disparaging word about him. But were we baptized unto Martin Luther? No, we were not. 1 Corinthians 1.13 Some people can never budge an inch beyond John Calvin, whom I reverence first of all mere mortal men. But still, John Calvin is not our master, but only a more advanced pupil in the school of Christ. He teaches, and as far as he teaches as Christ taught, he is authoritative. But where Calvin goes apart from Jesus, he is no more to be followed than Voltaire himself. There are brethren whose one reference for everything is to the words of John Wesley. What would Mr. Wesley have said is an important question with them. We think it's a little matter what he would have said or what he did say, for the guidance of Christians now so many years after his departure. It is far better to inquire into what Jesus says in his word. Wesley was one of the greatest men who ever lived, but he's not our master. We were not baptized in the name of John Wesley, or John Calvin, or Martin Luther. We have only one master, and that is Christ. Matthew 23, 10. There have been times in England when the government has set out to decide the rules and practices of the church. The government says, do this, and the Church of England must do it, or don't do that, and the church must obey. The church must take its meat like any dog from the hand that patronizes her, and her collar, made of whatever brass or leather Caesar chooses to ordain, bears this motto, You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Romans 6.16. The poorest minister, in the most despised of our churches, whose poverty is thought to make him abhorrent, but whose poverty is his glory if he bears it for Christ's sake, would scorn to have any spiritual act of his church submitted to the judgment of the state, and he would sooner die than be dictated to in the matter of divine worship. What has the church to do with the state? Our Master and Lord has set up a kingdom that allows no other king but Himself. We cannot bow and will not bow before decrees of Congress or Parliament and politicians and kings in spiritual things. Christ's church has only one head, and that is Christ, and the doctrines that the church has to teach cannot be judged by a church court or a bench of bishops or a synod of ministers or a presbytery, or a conference. The Lord Jesus Christ has taught us certain things, and if His teaching is contradicted, the contradiction is treason against His crown. Even if the whole church were assembled, and that church were the true one, if it would contradict the teaching of Christ, 
Its decrees should mean no more to a Christian than the whistling of the wind upon the mountains. For Christ is Master, and none but Christ. If an apostle or an angel from heaven preaches any other doctrine than that of our Lord, let him be accursed. Galatians 1 8. I would to God that all Christians stood up for this. Then would sects and names and parties fall, and Jesus Christ be all in all. He is the only teacher and the only legislator in these matters. A church has a right to carry out Christ's laws, but it has no right to make a law. The ministers of Christ are bound to carry out the rules of Christ, and when they do so, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Matthew 18, 18. But if they have acted upon any rules except those of this book, their laws are only worthy of contempt. Be they what they may, they bind no Christian heart. The yoke Christ puts on us will be our joy to wear, but the yoke that church leaders thrust upon us will be our glory to trample on. Scripture If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. John 8 36. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5 1 King James Version. The Master. That is the name Christ should receive throughout the whole church, and he should be regarded always and on all occasions and in reference to all spiritual subjects as the last court of appeal, whose inspired word is, The judge that ends the strife where wit and reason fail. That's what I have to say about appropriateness of the title, The Master, for our Lord Jesus. Now let us consider the special recognition that Mary gave to Christ as the Master. How did she give that recognition? She became his student. She sat reverently at his feet. Beloved, if he is our Master, let us do the same. Let us take every word of Jesus, weigh it, read it, hear it, observe it, learn it, feed on it, and inwardly digest it. I am afraid we do not read our Bibles as we should. We do not attach such importance as we should to every shade of expression that our Master uses. I would like to see a picture of Mary sitting at the Master's feet. Great artists have painted the Virgin Mary so often that they would do well to do something different and sketch this Mary looking up with a deep fixed gaze, drinking it all in and treasuring it all up sometimes startled by a new thought and a fresh doctrine, and then inquisitively waiting until her face beams with unspeakable delight as new light floods her heart. Her attentive discipleship proved how truly Jesus was her Master. Notice, too, that Mary was not only His disciple, but she was a disciple of no one else. I don't know whether Gamaliel was popular then, but she did not sit at His feet. There was probably some rabbi Ben Simon or some other famous scholar at the time, but Mary never spent an hour with him, for every moment she could set apart was joyously spent at the feet of a far dearer rabbi. She sat quite close to the teacher, not wanting to miss even a word. 
Maybe she was afraid that she might be slow of heart, and so she got as close to the preacher as others do who have a little deafness in their ears. In any case, her favorite place was close at his feet. That shows us that since we are always dull of hearing in our souls, it's good to get very close to Jesus when we are hearing Him, and it is good to commune while we listen. Mary didn't change from him to someone else for variety's sake. No, the master, her master, her only master, was the Nazarene, whom others despised, but whom she called her Lord. She was a willing scholar, for Mary has chosen the good part, Jesus said, Luke ten forty two. Nobody sent her to sit at Jesus' feet. She was drawn to Jesus and she could not help going to him. She loved to be there. She was a willing and delighted listener. She was never so happy as when she had her choice, and that choice was always to learn of him. Children at school always learn well if they want to learn. If they must be forced to go to school, they still learn, but they don't learn as much in comparison to those who eagerly go. When they want to go, and when they love the teacher, they learn quickly and happy is the teacher who has a class of students who has chosen him to teach them. Mary could well call Jesus the Master, for she made him her sole attention, her loving and delighted focus. Notice that in choosing Christ for her Master, she perseveringly remained devoted to him. Her choice was not taken away from her, and she did not give it up. Martha looked very irritated one day. How was she to watch the roast meat and the boiling pan at the same time? How could she be expected to prepare the table and to take care of the fire in the kitchen too? Why couldn't Mary come? Martha frowned, no doubt, but it didn't matter. Mary remained sitting at the feet of Jesus. Maybe she didn't even notice Martha's face. I don't think she did, for the saints do not notice other faces when Christ's beauty is to be seen. There is something so absorbing about Him that He takes you entirely into Himself, captivating you. When He does draw someone to Himself, He not only draws the person to Himself, but He draws all of the person to Himself. So Mary sat there still, and she continued to listen. Those children who don't just study every once in a while, but those who are always learning, will learn as they stick to their books. Mary recognized the Lord Jesus Christ's master-teacher designation by giving to him that persevering attention that such a master-teacher had a right to claim. She bent humbly to him, for while she sat at his feet to be near him, she sat there too out of deep humility of spirit. She felt that it was her highest honor to be sitting in the lowest place, for lowly was her mind. Those who think least of themselves will learn most of Christ. When a place at His feet seems to be too good for us, or if we are more than content with it, then His words will fall as the rain and drop as the dew. We will be as the tender herbs that drink in sweet refreshment, and our souls will grow. Blessed are you, O Mary, and blessed is each one of you if you can call Christ your Master and prove it as she did. You will have the good part that will not be taken away from you. Luke 10:42. Now let us consider the special sweetness of the name to us. 
I have shown why the title of The Master was especially recognized by Mary, and now I want to show that it has a special sweetness for us also. I love that name, The Master. My Master or my teacher. I love that name in my own soul because it is as a teacher that Jesus Christ is my Savior. The best illustration I can give you is that of one of those poor little boys in the street without father and mother or with parents worse than none. The poor child is covered with filth and rags. He is well known to the policeman, and he has seen the inside of many jails. But a teacher in a Christian charitable organization has found him and instructed him, and now he is washed and clothed and happy. Now that poor boy does not know the sweetness of my father or my mother. He doesn't recognize anything in those titles. Maybe he never knew his parents, or only knew such a form of them as to disgust him. But with what energy he says, my teacher! These little children say, My teacher, with quite as much affection as others speak of their mothers. Where there has been a great moral change brought about by the influence of a teacher, the name My teacher has much sweetness in it. Hear now the parable of the little boy and his teacher. I was that little child. Truly, I didn't think of myself as poor and dirty for I was foolish enough to think my rags were fine garments, and that my filth was my beauty. I didn't know what I was. My teacher saw me, though, and he knew how filthy and how ragged I was. He taught me to see myself as I was, and also to believe that he could wash me whiter than snow. Isaiah 1, 18. He went even further, and actually washed me until I was clean before the Lord. My teacher showed me a wardrobe of snow-white linen garments, and he clothed me in them. My teacher has taught me a thousand things, and has given innumerable blessings to me. I owe my salvation entirely to my teacher, my master, my Lord. Can you say the same? I know you can, if you are indeed a disciple of Jesus. My teacher means to you my Saviour, for He saved you by teaching you about your disease and your remedy, teaching you how wrong you were and making you right by His teaching. The word master or teacher has a delightful meaning to us, for it is by His teaching that we are saved. Let me tell you how I, as a preacher, love the name my master. I like to feel that what I said to those people on Sunday was not mine. I preached my master, and I preached what my master told me. Some find fault with the doctrine. I don't mind that, because it wasn't mine, it was my master's. If I were a servant and went to the front door with a message, and the gentleman to whom I took it did not like the message, I would say, Don't be angry with me, sir. I have told you my master's message to the best of my ability and I am not responsible for it. It is my master's word, not mine. When there are no souls converted, it is dreary work, and one's heart is heavy. But it is comforting to go and tell your master. When souls are converted, and your heart is glad, it is a happy and a healthy thing to give all the glory to your master. 
It would be an awkward thing to have to act on someone else's behalf without having any advice from or communication with that person. That would be a serious burden and responsibility. However, blessed be God, between every true minister and his master there is open communication, and he never needs to do anything by himself. He can imitate the disciples of John the Baptist, who, when they had taken up his mangled body, went and told Jesus, Matthew 14, 12. That is the thing to do. There are difficulties in all churches, troubles in all families, and cares in all businesses, but it's good to have a master to whom you can go as a servant, knowing that Jesus has the responsibility of the whole matter. We only have to do what He tells us. If we step beyond our Lord's commands, the responsibility rests on us and trouble begins, but if we follow our Lord, we cannot go astray. My master, is this not a sweet name to say when you are troubled, dear friends? Maybe some of you are in trouble now. It removes fear when you find out that he who sent the trouble is the teacher who teaches you by the trouble. The master has a right to use whatever form of teaching he likes. In our schools, much is learned from the blackboard, and in Christ's school, much is learned from affliction. You have heard the story often, but I will repeat it again, of the gardener who had preserved a very special rose with great care. One morning, when he went into the garden, it was gone, and he scolded his fellow servants and felt very distressed until someone said, I saw the master coming through the garden this morning, and I believe he took the rose. Oh, then, the gardener said, if the master took it, I am content. Have you lost a dear child, or a wife, or a friend? It was he who took your flower. It belonged to him. Would you want to keep back what Jesus wants? We are asked to pray sometimes for the lives of good people. And I think we can, but I haven't always exercised faith while pleading, because it seemed to me that Christ pulled one way and I pulled the other. I said, Father, let them be here. And Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. John 17, 24. And so I could not then pull very hard. If you know that Christ is pulling the other way, you give up quickly. You say, Let the Father have it, the servant cannot oppose the Master. Scripture It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. 1 Samuel 3.18 I have become mute, I do not open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Psalm 39.9 Our Master learned that lesson himself that he now teaches to us. That is a very remarkable statement. Scripture, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. Luke 10.21 It pleased God to pass by the wise and prudent. Matthew 11.25 And therefore it pleased Christ that it should be so. It is good to have our hearts like that poor shepherd to whom a gentleman said, 
I wish you a good day. He replied, I never knew a bad day. How is that, my friend? The days are just as God chooses to make them, and therefore they are all good. Well, said the other, don't some days please you more than others? No, he said, what pleases God pleases me. Well, but do you not have a choice? said the other. Yes, I have a choice, and my choice is that I choose that God would choose for me. But do you not have a preference whether you would live or die? No, he answered, for if I am here, Christ will be with me, and if I am in heaven, I will be with him. But suppose you had to choose. I would ask God to choose for me, he said. Oh, what a sweet simplicity that leaves everything with God! This is calling Jesus Master to perfection. Pleased with all the Lord provides, weaned from all the world besides. Once again, dear friends, it is sweet to us to call Jesus Master, because in so doing we take a position that is easy to reach, and yet is most delightful. To call him our bridegroom, what an honor it is to be so closely related to the Son of God. Friend is a familiar and honorable title. To call him Master, though, is often easier, and it is quite as sweet. It is pure delight to us to be in his service, even if we take no higher place. If our hearts are right, to do whatever the Lord asks and commands is as much as we can ask for. Though we are now sons and not slaves, and therefore our service is of a different character from whatever it was before, yet our service to Him is our delight. What will heaven be but perpetual service? Here we labor to enter into rest, Hebrews 4, 11, but there they enter into rest while they labor. Rest is the perfect obedience of fully sanctified spirits. Do you not desire that? Will it not be one of your greatest joys in heaven to know that you are His servant? The glorified ones are called His servants in heaven. Scripture His bond servants will serve Him, they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Revelation 22, 3-4 Cause us to be free from sin, and we would be in heaven now. Earth would be heaven to us. I want you, dear brethren in Christ, to go away saying this sweet phrase under your tongue, My Master, My Master. You will never hear better music than that, My Master, My Master. Go and live as servants should live. Be sure that you truly make Him your Master, for He says, If I am a Master, where is My respect? Malachi 1 6. Speak well of him, for servants should speak well of a good master, and no servant ever had so dear a master as Jesus. But there are some of you who cannot say this. I wish you could. Jesus is not your master. Who is then? You have a master somewhere, for you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Romans 6.16. If you obey the lusts of the flesh, your master is your flesh, and the wages will be corruption, for the flesh comes to corruption and nothing better. If your master is the devil, 
His wages are death. Run away from such a master. When servants leave their masters, they are usually required to give notice, but this is a case in which no notice should ever be given. When the prodigal son ran away from feeding the swine, he never stopped to give notice that he was going to leave the pigs, but started off immediately. Luke 15:20. I recommend that every sinner run by the grace of God directly away from his sins. Staying to give notice is the ruin of many. They intend to be sober, but they must treat their good intention to another glass or two. They intend to think about divine things, but they must go to the theater once more. They are willing to serve Christ, but tomorrow, not tonight. If I had such a master as you have who live in sin, I would get up at once and run away. I would say, By the grace of God, I will have Christ for my Lord. Look at your grim master. Look at his cunning eyes. Can you not see that he is a flatterer? He intends your ruin. He will destroy you as he has destroyed countless others already. That horrid glance of sin, that enticing desire, consider them and abhor them. Do not serve a master who, though he gives you fair promises, labors for your destruction. Get up and run away, you slaves of sin. Eternal Spirit, come and break their chains. Sweet star of liberty, guide them to the free country and let them find their freedom in Jesus Christ. My master rejoices to receive runaways. His door is open to vagrants and vagabonds, to the scum of the earth and the offscouring of all things, to people who are dissatisfied with themselves, and to miserable people who have no joy in their lives and are ready to lie down and die. Scripture This man receives sinners. Luke 15, 2. He is like David, who went into Adullam, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. 1 Samuel 22, 1-2. Just as Romulus and Remus gathered the first population of New Rome by harboring escaped slaves and robbers whom they trained into citizens and made to be brave soldiers, so my master has laid the foundation of the New Jerusalem, and he looks for the noblest of his citizens over there where sin and Satan hold them captive. He commands us to sound the silver trumpet and tell the slaves of sin that if they flee to him, He will never give them up to their old master. He will set them free and will make them citizens of his great city, sharers of his abundance, and partakers in his triumphs. They will be his in the day when he makes up his jewels. I remember preaching about this once, and an old sea captain told me after the sermon that he had served under the black flag of sin and Satan for fifty years, and by the grace of God, he would tear down the old flag and run up the blood-red cross of Jesus Christ at the masthead. I recommended to him not merely to change his flag, but to see that the vessel was repaired. But he wisely replied that repairing would be of no use to such an old waterlogged hulk, and he had better scrap the old ship and get a new one. I suppose that is the best thing to do to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.11
No matter what you do with the old wreck of fallen nature, you will never keep it afloat. The old man must be crucified with Christ. Romans 6 6. It must be dead, buried, and sunk fifty thousand fathoms deep, never to be heard of again. In the new vessel that Jesus launches in the day of our regeneration, with the blessed flag of atoning blood above us, we will sail to heaven escorted by irresistible grace, giving God the glory for ever and ever. Amen.